Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. Today we are talking about the Treaty of Amsterdam, which amended the Treaty on the European Union, also known as the Maastricht Treaty, the treaties establishing the European communities and certain related acts. I'll also be addressing the acquis communautaire principle mentioned in the Maastricht episode, as well as the Schengen Agreement. Sources for today include the treaties themselves, of course, websites from the European Parliament, and also two articles from the Fordham International Law Journal. As always, you can find all the sources in the description box. I would just like to remind everyone that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. So let's get cracking. In 1995, Austria, Finland and Sweden joined the European Union. The external image of the Union is now becoming that where the prosperous nations lie and where liberal democracy and the values of the rule of law are securely embedded. At this point, there are 15 member states and in 2004, 10 more would arrive. But before 2004, the Amsterdam Treaty came to be, having been signed in Amsterdam on October 1997 and entering into force on the 1st of May 1999. The Treaty of Amsterdam was the third treaty to majorly revise the European Community's treaty structure and scope. Now, by the time of its implementation, the European Communities have grown over 50% from its original 60 members. <laughs> original six members, not 60, that'd be quite impressive. Any members who wanted to join the community were accepted on the basis they would have to accept the acquis communautaire. This was a principle that Roger J. Goebel, in his 1998 article titled The Treaty of Amsterdam in Historical Perspective, Introduction to the Symposium, described as a key concept, which has never really been successfully translated into English. Nevertheless, the UK Parliament defines it now as the accumulated body of EU law and obligations from 1958 to the present day. It comprises all the EU's treaties and laws, which include directives, regulations, decisions, declarations and resolutions, international agreements and the judgments of the Court of Justice. Goebel translates it similarly to being, quote, the community's institutional structure, scope and political objectives, as well as the major constitutional doctrines of the Court of Justice. It meant that aspiring members had to accept the legal order of the community, quote, including the principles of direct applicability of certain treaty provisions, the primacy of the community law over any conflicting national provisions, and the uniform interpretation of community law. So direct applicability, primacy of community law, and uniform interpretation, all of which had been developed previously by the Court of Justice. In the next two enlargements, the new states all formally accepted this principle. Furthermore, the Declaration on Democracy in Copenhagen in April 1978, delivered by the European Council, expanded the principle to include, quote, adherence by applicant countries to the principles of representative democracy, of the rule of law, of social justice, and of respect for human rights. This might sound familiar if you remember the previous Maastricht Treaty episode, as indeed the Treaty of Maastricht incorporated the principles as a key aspect of the EU. New members meant a change of institutional structure to include, for example, new members of the European Parliament, judges on the Court of Justice, and increasing the numbers of members in the Commission. Member states were disagreeing whether to keep allowing members to choose a commissioner or whether they wanted to limit the size of the commission, as they attempted to do so by capping parliamentary membership at 700. The same went for the members of the Court of Justice. Voting became more difficult, as it is harder to achieve a consensus with more members, especially when they needed to be unanimously agreed upon. 
As before mentioned, qualified majority voting became a necessary change, albeit an extremely sensitive topic. So while the Treaty of Maastricht was at the time the most substantive change made to the treaties thus far, member states still felt that further modifications were necessary. An intergovernmental conference was set for 1996 to examine any further recommendations, which was arguably a bit too early of a date to set given that the Treaty of Maastricht only went into effect in November 1993, and everyone was a bit distracted given that Austria, Finland and Sweden were about to join two years later. Either way, preparations for further review went ahead, and for the first time, all three of the community institutions were to provide reports containing their observations for potential treaty changes and on their functioning as institutions as well. All these reflections ended up becoming the Strategy for Europe report, and it was heavily used in the 1996 Intergovernmental Conference. The formal agenda for the IGC particularly stressed, quoting Goebbels' article, Number one, preparations for the future enlargement to include Central European states. Number two, bringing the Union closer to its citizens, notably by restructuring the cooperation in home and justice affairs. Number three, making the institutions more democratic, efficient and transparent, especially by widening the scope of co-decision and examining the modes of council voting. And number four, strengthening the external relations capacity of the Union, especially by improved procedures and structure in the common foreign and security policy. Jean-Claude Piris and Giorgio Maganza, in their article The Amsterdam Treaty, Overview and Institutional Aspects, note that increased focus on employment rates and improved provisions on social policy were of paramount importance to the IGC and provided evidence that, quote, citizens' concerns are high on the list of the European Union's priorities. The opening of the IGC presented a draft treaty to the Amsterdam European Council in 1997, thus only working on it for a bit more than a year. Various other European councils worked on it throughout the year, and although they couldn't agree on all the issues, such as the size and composition of the Commission, or the reweighting of the votes in the Council, other issues were resolved through complex protocols, thus allowing the Treaty of Amsterdam to be treated on the 2nd of November 1997 and entering into force on the 1st of May 1999. Now let's get into the actual treaty. The Amsterdam Treaty had five main objectives increased powers for the Union, a stronger position for Parliament closer cooperation, simplification, and institutional reforms with a view to enlargement. So, starting with the first one, the increased union powers. For the European community, having a balanced and sustainable development and a high level of employment was prioritised, and a mechanism was created in order to coordinate the policies on employment of member states, also leaving room for some possible community measures. The community method now applied to significant areas that had previously come under the third pillar of the EU. For example, asylum, immigration, crossing external borders, combating fraud, customs cooperation and judicial cooperation in civil matters. There was also cooperation under the Schengen Agreement. The Schengen Agreement was originally signed in 1985 by Belgium, France, Germany, Luxembourg and the Netherlands for the purpose of the gradual removal of controls at common borders and introducing freedom of movement for all signatory EU member nationals, other EU states and non-EU countries. The Schengen Convention was signed in 1990, which supplements the agreements and lays down the arrangements and safeguards necessary for implementing such freedom of movement. Both the agreement and the convention, the rules that were adopted on the basis thereof, and also any related agreements together form what is known as the Schengen Acquis. Since the signing of the convention, this has formed part of the EU's institutional and legal framework by virtue of a protocol to the Amsterdam Treaty. Now, back to the treaty. 
Increased powers for the European Union meant that intergovernmental cooperation in police and judicial areas became stronger, with the inclusion of defining objectives and tasks, as well as creating a new legal instrument that is not unlike a directive, called the Common Strategy. A new office was also created, called the Secretary-General of the Council responsible for the Common Foreign and Security Policy, bit of a mouthful there, and a new structure called the Policy, Planning and Early Warning Unit. Another major step of the Amsterdam Treaty was Parliament's stronger position concerning legislative power, power of control and election and statute of members. The co-decision procedure was extended to Parliament's existing legal basis under the EC Treaty, and it's essentially where Parliament and Council became co-legislators on practically equal footing. The co-decision procedure applied to all the areas where the Council was allowed to take decisions by qualified majority voting, all areas except the agriculture and competition policy. Articles 18, 42, 47 and 151 on cultural policy represent the four cases where the co-decision procedure was combined with the requirement for a unanimous council decision. And of course, other legislative areas where unanimity was required was not subject to co-decision. In terms of the power of control, not only had Parliament the power to vote to approve the Commission as a body, Article 214 allows Parliament to vote to approve in advance the person nominated as the President of the Future Commission. Regarding the procedure for elections to Parliament by direct universal suffrage, as addressed in Article 190 of the EC Treaty, the community's power to adopt common principles was added to the existing power to adopt a uniform procedure. The same article made it possible to adopt a single statute for MEPs, although note that there was still no provision that allowed political parties to develop at European level. Objective 3. Closer cooperation. This was the first time that the treaties contained provisions that allowed for some member states, under particular conditions, to take advantage of common institutions to organise closer cooperation, in addition to closer cooperation to specific provisions, such as the Economic and Monetary Union, creation of the Area of Freedom, Security and Justice and the Schengen Provisions. Closer cooperation was possible in the areas that the third pillar addressed, and under very restrictive conditions, matters subjective to the non-exclusive community competence. Any closer cooperation had to fulfil certain conditions and a planned decision-making procedure was set up to ensure that this new process of integration would remain exceptional and would only be used to move towards further integration, not taking retrograde steps. The fourth objective was uh, simplification. The Amsterdam Treaty removed all obsolete or void provisions, uh, given the passing of time, in the European treaties, while making sure that this did not affect the legal effects derived from them in the past. Due to the number of states joining the EU, the institutional reforms had to be readdressed. This is the fifth objective. Article 189 of the Amsterdam Treaty set the maximum number of European Parliament members at 700. The Commission's composition and the weighted votes problem was covered by a protocol on the institutions, which provided that in a union of 20 states, the Commission would comprise of one national of each member states, provided that by the time the weighting of the votes in the Council had been changed. There was then also a provision for the Council to use qualified majority voting in numerous legal bases that were established by the Amsterdam Treaty. However, for obvious reasons of the existing community policies, only the research policy had new provisions on qualified majority voting, with other policies still requiring unanimity. It is also worth noting that the Amsterdam Treaty had a protocol that covered community procedures for the implementation of the subsidiarity principle. 
Article 255 included new provisions on documentation access and Article 207 addressed greater openness in the legislative work of the council, all of which improved transparency. As I did with the other episodes, I'm just going to quickly summarise what we've just been through. It's firstly worth bearing in mind that the treaty was created when there were already over 50% of the original members of the EU. The Amsterdam Treaty had five main objectives. Increased powers for the Union involved the strengthening of intergovernmental cooperation in police and judicial cooperation, and creating a new legal instrument, the Common Strategy. Creating a stronger position for Parliament meant implementing the co-decision procedure. The Parliament and the Council became co-legislators on basically equal footing. Closer cooperation was where member states could use common institutions, but this was still rather restrictive. Simplification meant getting rid of all the old and void aspects of previous treaties without impacting their legal effect from the past. Institutional reforms due to the enlargement included the capping of MEPs at 700, and in an additional protocol, if there were 20 member states in the Union, having the Commission comprise of one national of each member state provided that the votes in the Council changed as well. And there you have it. I will be leaving you guys with this for today. If you'd like to hear more about the impact of enlargement of the EU, I've added a link to a paper by the European Commission, which gives further insight into what they call a historic opportunity. I'm also going to be linking Goebbels and Piris and Maganza's articles, which provide great contextual insight into the Amsterdam Treaty. In the next episode, we will be going through the Treaty of Nice. Thank you ever so much for listening and please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye!